0: Welcome back to the Carnivore Yogi Podcast. This is episode 32, and today I spoke with Elliot Overton, who is a nutritional therapist and a certified functional medicine practitioner. He has worked with people on a carnivore diet for many years now and holds a lot of expertise in this space. I really wanted someone to ask some tough questions to that have worked one-on-one with people. so. When I talk with someone, I really value the opinions of people who have worked with lots of people, looked at lots of blood work, looked at lots of stool tests, and how they have helped people overcome different issues. And There are different issues, I feel like, that we we talk about here on the podcast that people that do a carnivore diet or an animal-based diet that some people do experience and you know I've been somebody who's experienced a lot of these issues the ones that we talk about and I'm I'm not one to brush things under the rug I hope you guys know that about me by now I want to get to the bottom of things I want to know why are people having these specific issues and then how do we help them from there so Elliot was really kind enough to devote a lot of his time to this episode so I am dividing it up into two parts so part one today is all about the strain on our kidneys from eating a high protein diet, which I know a lot of people say is not a thing, (laughs) but in my experience and in working with a lot of people, there are some blood markers that tend to go awry on a carnivore diet in regards to kidney function. So I really wanted to talk through this and we also talked about gut issues extensively we talked about gut issues going into the carnivore diet and then the population of people that might develop gut issues after going on to a carnivore diet so it's very extensive make sure that you are subscribed and you have notifications turned on for next week when we go over histamine intolerance and possibly the case for supplements on a carnivore diet and what are the most common issues elliot sees on a carnivore diet estrogen dominance thyroid issues so that's all coming next week this week is more about kidney function and gut issues so i hope you guys do enjoy it please do make sure that you are subscribed that you go on over to apple you can leave me up to a five star review i really do appreciate that it helps me continue to get this information out to more people who need help who need assistance troubleshooting and want to really live their best and most healthiest life so I hope that you enjoy this episode. This episode is sponsored by Let's Get Checked. You can use my code YOGI30 to get 30% off of any lab test over at Let's Get Checked. I'm going to put in the show notes for you guys a link for the kidney function test because one of the things that Elliot and I talk about in this episode is testing kidney function. and. As I mentioned in the episode, I got a kidney test from my doctor as part of a comprehensive metabolic panel back at the beginning of 2020, and a lot of the markers were off, specifically the blood urea nitrogen, creatinine and GFR which basically shows how well your kidneys are filtrating so I had some pretty bad markers and was really freaked out Elliot and I do talk about that in this episode but I have used let's get checked over the last year and a half to continue checking in on my kidneys as I have made specific changes which again Elliot and I do talk about in this episode to my carnivore diet And I'm happy to report my markers all look good, but Let's Get Checked gives me amazing peace of mind that if I just wanna get something checked out, I don't need to go through my doctor's office, pay for a lab draw fee, argue with the insurance company about whether or not they're going to cover it. I can just order these tests here at home. I've tested several different markers over the last year and a half my hormones my thyroid my a1c that's a good one your crp but you can get any of those using the link that'll be in the show notes and thanks again to let's get checked for sponsoring this episode my discount code for 30 percent off of anything on the let's get checked website is yogi 30. All right, let's get to the show. Thanks for listening, guys. All right, guys, thank you so much for coming back and tuning in. I'm really excited about today's guest. Elliot Overton is, I feel, an expert in this field, and I have a lot of interesting questions to ask him today. So thank you, Elliot, for being here today.
1: You're perfectly welcome. Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, if you don't mind, before we jump into questions, can you talk a little bit about your background and expertise. I know a lot of us have just kind of binged watched a lot of your videos that are in the carnivore and keto space, but would you mind talking about your background just a little bit?
1: Yeah, of course. Uh, I'm a nutritionist based in the UK. I uh, have done some training in what's called functional medicine. Uh, I'm not a medical doctor, uh, but I am interested in how we can apply nutrition um, in the context of chronic disease and how people can Try to improve the health via natural methods. Um, so I tend to work with a lot of people who are on carnivore diets or ketogenic or animal-based diets. Uh, this has been the case for three years or so. So I have kind of, I have a particular interest in this myself. I've followed these kinds of diets for a long time um, before I started working with people. With these um this dietary preference let's say uh and i over the years i've kind of honed in on some of the key issues which i often see people have in this regard they might do these kind of diets and then either they don't feel benefits or they feel some benefits but things are holding them back um or they actually get worse so i'm interested in kind of why that happens and how people can try to troubleshoot that in various ways Uh, and yeah, I guess, uh, that's, that's kind of an overview.
0: Wonderful. Yeah. That's exactly why I wanted to bring you on is I feel like you've really worked so hard to try to understand why people run into specific problems on these types of diets. Cause I think they are very helpful to do, but then when, how do you help the people when they just have, you know, these kind of chronic issues that we'll start to talk about today.
1: Yeah, Yeah, indeed. Yeah.
0: Cool. Well, the first question, and these are kind of in for people listening, not in any specific order, just kind of what came to mind when I was sending Elliot some questions. Um, I wanted to talk about having high blood urea nitrogen, um, high creatinine, you know, people that are concerned about the strain on their kidneys from these diets. And then I know we often see a low EGFR and just kind of what your thoughts are on that topic.
1: Yeah. Okay. Um, so you have to take this for what it's worth. Uh, you know, I'm not not a medical doctor, as you know, and for all the listeners, this definitely isn't medical advice, but I'm sure your listeners know that already. I just have to kind of preface what I say with that. Um, okay. Yeah. So this is something that you have seen. Mm
0: -hmm. Oh um, yeah. I've I had it myself and now I've corrected it, but I had it after a year of carnivore. My BUN was out of range. My creatinine was high. And my GFR was down to like a 60 and I was terrified. Yeah, I was very, very worried about this. And then of course I put my blood work on the internet and I got trolled by a bunch of vegans. And then I, they were saying things like, I hope Sean Baker visits you when you're on dialysis. And it was really scary. Now my GFR is a 110 and everything's in range and I'm in a good spot, but it's always kind of been in my mind of like, this happens to a lot of people that I see and I, I want to know why and then what's the best way to, to help them.
1: Okay. And just before we go into that, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Um, you, you found a way to address this, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yep.
1: And is I that s- public how you did that?
0: Yeah. I stopped yeah. doing a super high protein carnivore. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was doing was I was trying to do a more of a high protein, low fat approach And I had to really work hard on my electrolytes as Mm -hmm. well, because my electrolytes, I was very dehydrated. And um, I also have worked a lot on healing my gut as well. So those are the main things that I did. And now my numbers are all really good.
1: Okay, interesting. Uh, Yeah, that kind of relates to what I was going to kind of uh, say. Uh, To a large extent, with people who go on animal-based diets, if you look at various markers, you've got BUN, which is blood, urea, nitrogen. It's basically your total pool of like nitrogenous waste, um, which is primarily derived from protein, right? So Mm -hmm. it's consistent or it's it's kind of logical to assume that the more protein someone eats, the more breakdown products of the protein they may have in the blood. So when you break down protein, uh, you kind of liberate lots of different things you liberate ammonia and nitrogen etc and you generate uh higher levels of something called urea and now urea is generally part of one of these kind of panels so if you're measuring urea in the blood and you see that that is high well that can be simply because someone is eating too much protein it doesn't necessarily mean that they have some kind of a metabolic uh major metabolic issue going on um so it's important to kind of i guess consider that the blood work of a carnival is likely gonna be different to the average person. And that's where a lot of the research and the understanding of physiology is based on is an average person on a balanced diet. So when you're looking at a diet, which is primarily protein, like a high protein diet with fats and very little or no carbohydrates, then things have to change. And we have to kind of account for that. So you can't apply the same rules to one group as you can, can to another to some extent. So with regard to some of these markers, okay, you look at urea, well, urea can be slightly elevated, it can be on the high side. And that's not necessarily a problem. That Mm -hmm. can mean that someone is just eating too much protein, or if they are, let's say, uh, um, if they bodybuild, if if they lift weights, if they do strenuous exercise, and they're breaking down protein, muscle mass, and they're building it back up, this again theoretically could be one of the reasons why they see high urea so that alone is a standard standalone marker is not necessarily all that informative if you couple that with bun well again bun protein is is providing nitrogen for the body okay we need to get rid of that and so nitrogenous waste is is toxic we generally don't want high amounts of it for prolonged periods of time. If someone has kidney failure, they have very high levels of bun. That's, that's, you know, that's really bad thing. But if it's ever so slightly on the high side, again, it can tell us some information, but not, it's not like diagnostic. So for Mm -hmm. instance, the BUN, it can just tell us that someone's eaten higher protein or they are, um, you know, they've been training hard or something like that. So those two markers, they're not necessarily problematic if they're ever so slightly on the higher side when that's coupled with what is an estimate it's called uh, estimated glomerular filtration rate that's probably the one of the best estimates of kidney function that is available uh, kind of you know to the, to the wider public well this is this is where it can be kind of important as per my opinion so uh, GFR is meant to be above 60 ordinarily, you know, if you're sitting at around 60, that's still not great. Yeah. Um, it should, I like to see it anywhere between 90 and hundred or 110 kind of thing. Um, and so if you notice, or if someone notices that they have high BUN, they have high urea and they also have low glomerular filtration rate, and they see that that happened after going on a ketogenic diet, or a carnivorous diet, well, that is potentially a problem. Um, and that kind of needs some investigation. So what I see this like really frequently, um, and for these people, oftentimes they don't have any other kind of signs and symptoms of a, uh, a genuine like metabolic problem. They, they've no history of chronic kidney disease. They've right. no history of like uh, liver disease, anything like that. They're generally, relatively speaking, healthy people, but they just have these really strange kidney markers, which have all of a sudden come on since they've been doing this crazy, crazy diet. Now, ordinarily, if someone looks at that and you know, it's, it's understandable if they might conclude that this diet is, 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 is unhealthy for them. And I would say it might be true, but it might be something a lot, lot simpler, like what you've said. So first of all, it's important to note that glomerular filtration rate, what I understand about it, I'm not a specialist in kidney function or anything like that, but from what I understand that fluctuates depending on various different factors. So you can measure GFR one day and then you can measure GFR one or two days later and it can fluctuate. So it can be on the lower side of normal. It can be on the low side, but then it can go higher again. And and one of those, um, one of the factors which is going to determine a GFR is hydration. Okay. So if someone is, is dehydrated, that is one of the reasons why GFR can drop. Hmm. Okay. At the same time, um gfr is quite sensitive to acidity now if you have been a vegan or you follow the vegan kind of standpoint on dietary protein or you know you've bought into any of the conventional kind of dogma around dietary protein they will say that protein is unhealthy for the kidneys because it's because it's acidic because it does provide an acid when it's broken down it does provide acid for the body and the body does need to excrete that. Now there's lots of different mechanisms by which we're kind of maintaining acid-base homeostasis, so the balance between acidity and alkalinity. One of the ways in which we're doing that is through the kidneys. And so ordinarily a perfectly fun- functioning kidney uh, can uh, quite, quite well kind of maintain the balance between excreting acids and, and bases and whatnot and maintaining kind of a, a relatively stable environment. However, the kidney is somewhat susceptible um, to excess acidity. So one of the ways in which the kidney can uh, counteract that is by secreting bicarbonate, okay? Bicarbonate is is an alkaline substance. And what that helps helps to do is basically balance things out. And so in some cases, like you have kind of clarified through your experience, and like what I've seen on numerous other occasions, is that someone who has low GFR, high BUN and high urea might just be consuming a little bit too much protein. Mm. Okay. Yep. And that might not be coupled with their activity levels, with their kind of um, anabolic catabolic balance kind of thing. So if this, some, if this particular kind of person is not working out heavily, if mm. they are not kind of doing anything, providing stimulus to the muscles, which are going to um, kind of tell, tell, tell someone to to build muscle, then And and sometimes people, if they don't like eating fat, if they've come from kind of like a low-fat diet, they can quite easily overeat on protein. And because of that, what, what I think one of the reasons why GFR goes down is because of the kind of excess burden the kidneys are placed under by having to deal with the nitrogen, nitrogenous waste, the acidity, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a couple of things that I have people do about this. I mean, one is to... Ideally, reduce protein if I if I kind of think it is a little bit too much. It kind of depends. You have to do the calculation with each different person. Um, and I can't think of it off the top of my head. But one is making sure that someone is not eating excess protein. Secondly, um, looking at um, potentially providing, uh, if, 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 if it's highly concerning for that person and they're concerned that they've got kind of chronic kidney disease or kidney failure, it's really uncommon, but if they do think that one way in which um, the researchers have done it in the past uh, and I use it in, in people who do have ongoing kidney issues is actually to supplement with bicarbonate. So this could be either sodium bicarbonate or potassium bicarbonate. So the research is fairly conclusive that in chronic kidney disease, bicarbonate is one of the a massively protective factor when it's supplemented and it slows the progression. And I've seen GFRs go from like, you know, fifty or below sixty to eighty in the space of you know a month or so of supplementing with a quarter teaspoon or half a teaspoon of sodium b- bicarbonate. Really, that's going to depend on someone's urine pH. So one of the ways, if you, one of the ways that you can kind of assess whether the acidity or acid base imbalance is driving potentially driving an issue with the kidneys is actually by looking at urinary pH. So you can get just a basic test strip. You can look at your pH levels and, um, and what I like to see is ordinarily between kind of, you know, 6.9 and 7.5 kind of thing. Okay. Okay. So ever so slightly towards the alkaline range, but more kind of neutral, what you'll often find is people who do have these, this kind of lab work, their urine is going to be kind of, you know, 5.6 or, you know, below six or in the low sixes. And I find that this is also really, really helpful for people with gout, and that's something mm. that kind of is its topic in its in its own sense. But carnivores who have this predisposition towards gout, uh, using sodium potassium bicarbonate is really beneficial for kind of reducing gout attacks oftentimes their, their their urine is is highly acidic so if you can bring that up to between 7 and 7.5 maybe um then then what you'll often find is that uh is that the lab markers do tend to improve something else with regard to uh with regard to carnivore diets and uh poor kidney function like a temporary worsening of kidney function well one of those is theoretical but i guess it probably could apply is one of the things which is known to reduce uh kidney function or gfr is um is advanced glycation end products okay mm. so this would usually be applicable for people who are on kind of standard western diets who are consuming high amounts of fructose uh sugars, car- refined carbohydrates, uh, polyunsaturated fats, you know, like uh, industrial seed oils, uh, advanced glycation end products are going to be a major problem. Um, but it's also theoretically possible that this might also apply on someone who's on a carnival diet, whose antioxidant system is not functioning kind of as it should do. Let's mm-hmm. say their endogenous system to protect against advanced gly- AGEs, uh, the main the main thing there being glutathione that's um the main cellular antioxidant if someone is not maintaining good glutathione status on a carnivore diet and there's a couple of reasons why that might actually be uh, if they they're not maintaining good glutathione status then it's entirely possible that um that over the long long term say a year or 18 months um that that is going to start affecting the kidneys the kidneys are massively or extremely sensitive to oxidative stress and that's one of the things that the 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 ages can do to the kidney to cause kidney damage um and in that case what i also like to do is if someone has done kind of if they've tried to optimize their hydration so their electrolytes potassium magnesium uh, even calcium uh and and sodium if we have tried to look at that front we've tried to do kind of the alkalinity stuff with the sodium bicarbonate or potassium bicarbonate um, we've reduced protein and they still have problems with their kidney function, I would then start looking at kind of glutathione status, some antioxidants, which are really useful for the kidneys, particularly alpha-lipoic alpha acid, um, MSM, NAC, and, uh, and, and raw glutathione. So, so actually liposomal glutathione as a supplement sometimes. Um, there's also a very good herbal formula, which is called Rentone. Rentone, um, it's made up of uh, several different herbs. I can't think off the top of my head exactly what they are, um, but I've seen that bring up, uh, bring up EGFR um, quite significantly by, you know, 30, 20, 30 points or something. Um, one other thing that I would think about is that if someone, and this isn't just any kind of ordinary person, but if someone has a history of consuming very high amounts of dietary oxalate, for instance, green smoothies, uh copious amounts of dark chocolate copious amounts of gluten-free grains uh or, or flowers like almond flowers lots of nuts seeds etc mm. uh very high oxalate foods i would be concerned or i, I may be honing in onto that because what you do often see is that as someone is dumping oxalate then they do go through periods where their gfr drops uh, massively because of the sheer amount of damage that um oxalate does to the kidneys um and yeah uh that is usually a temporary thing so that that will kind of fluctuate based on where they are kind of in their cycle and everything but yeah the the kind of main points i think i've touched on or what i would usually look for at the same time i would also want to try to get someone to have their medical doctor or their primary care physician in like within the picture, just so that they know what's going on so that they can inv- investigate. Maybe they'll want to do like a kidney ultrasound yeah. or something like that to, to find out whether whether the issue is, um, is anything more sinister.
0: Yeah, I actually went to my doctor after I got all the comments from the vegans and got a kidney ultrasound and they were looking at my blood work and they're like, why are you even here? It's not that right. bad, <laughs> you know, because they're so used to seeing things way off the charts, but I was just you know, I was just concerned. Um, What do you think if someone has this type of blood work prolonged, do you think it's going to lead to an issue if they just get blood work like this and it stays like that and gets, you know, they keep it for a long time or do you think it's not going to be a problem?
1: I think, well, the kidneys are designed to be clearing stuff from the body. Um, if that stuff isn't cleared, then that can cause some kind of damage, right? Mm, It's not very good, but at a low level, I mean, the body's pretty resilient, right? So it can deal with a lot for a very long time. Um, when kidney function drops like massively, you know, where to where it's like 20, then that's a medical emergency kind of thing. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't like seeing Uh, low gfr so i always like to try to uh promote the kind of i like to get people's doctors in on board so that i'm not responsible for, for you know for guiding them through that because that can be a medical emergency it can be something um which uh which which is which is something more sinister underlying but generally um i don't know how to answer your question i think it's probably not optimal but I don't right. think it's going to kill someone if it's ever so slightly on the low side. It's just really you—you—you you, you would want it. You want—you want your kidneys working as, as good as they possibly can be. It's like the liver. You, you know, you want yeah. all of these things working. I don't think it's pro, I, I don't think it's going to cause any like permanent damage or any serious damage. But over the long term, maybe it does. Uh, it. I'm not sure.
0: Okay. That's fair enough. Yeah, I just, I know so many people have this. And so I wanted to just cover that because I know a lot of them are going to say, well, what if I just ignore this? And if I, you know, keep the markers like this for a while. Basically, what you're saying is work with your doctor and uh maybe keep an eye on things right yeah
1: yeah exactly right look for the root cause so yeah. understandably if your physician doesn't know or he's not interested in looking or he wants to take you off the diet i mean it's possible that this diet doesn't work for everyone right and that right. that does seem to be the case but then again it's also possible that it could be something very simple it could be dehydration it could be that yeah. you're not consuming enough sodium you're not having enough potassium you're not retaining water And so you're chronically dehydrated. That's really common. It could be that you are, you know, if you've got digestive issues, if you've got chronic diarrhea, for instance, then also you could be chronically dehydrated. Uh, If you, um, you know, you smoke, you drink, you live like an unhealthy lifestyle generally, and you come into contact with a lot of junk, which kind of has a depleting effect on your protective um, chemicals, the antioxidant system. Then again, this is something which could predispose one to developing kidney issues. So it's like, look at all of these factors, reducing protein, you know, playing around with your macros, all the things that we've spoken about. And if it still doesn't improve, I would probably consider like if there's no identifiable cause, I I'd consider maybe playing around with the diet a little bit more, experiment with maybe adding in some carbohydrates or some fruits or something like that, which take you out of a state where you're primarily relying on, on, on meat, on animal protein and on fat, give you a little bit of food elsewhere. And if it improves, then I would say, okay, well, if that works for you, then continue doing that. You know, Mm I, if someone like, Sometimes people become obsessed with one diet and even when it actually works against them and it's detrimental for them, they want to stick to their guns and follow it through to the end. I I don't advise that kind of approach.
0: Yeah, I agree 100%, 100%. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope that you are enjoying this episode. I'm taking a little break in between the talking points here to thank the second sponsor of today's episode, which is going to be Healthy Gut. Now, when we start talking about gut health, a lot of times we skip right to probiotics, which I'm a huge believer in. You guys know I love my probiotics, but oftentimes people need support with their digestion. And I am obsessed with the healthy gut enzymes, as well as their HCL supplement and their butyrate supplement. Now, at the time of this recording, they might be sold out of their HCL, But I absolutely love their enzymes and their butyrate supplement. These things have been absolutely fundamental for me in helping fix my digestion on my carnivore diet, which again, Elliot and I are about to jump into in this episode. I hope you guys are enjoying it. If you do need some digestive support, if you do need to look into adding some supplements temporarily to help your digestion on a carnivore diet. Healthy Gut is my go-to. I will link them in the information section for you guys in the show notes so that you can check them out. I stand firmly behind them. They have a Facebook group that you are able to join after you purchase the products and they help you with your dosing. They have health coaches in that group. And also, if the products do not work out for you, you have some sort of a reaction to them or they just don't help they have a money-back guarantee you can ship the products back and get a full refund which I have never seen a supplement company do anything like that before so if you are looking for some good digestive supplements please check out healthy gut that will be linked in the show notes for you guys I have discount codes already added in and let's get back to the show I guess the next question really comes to gut issues. A lot of people doing carnivore keto or low carb diets and just really struggling with gut issues. Um, How do you handle that with clients?
1: Okay. Yeah. Good question. So it's really going to depend on when the gut issue started and the, the history of it. So I'll give you a couple of examples. So if someone comes to me, they say that they have chronic IBS I mean, if we're looking at kind of, are you talking about autoimmune, so inflammatory bowel diseases, or are you talking about something like IBS, diarrhea, constipation, bloating, that kind of thing?
0: I think more people are coming into this with like diarrhea, constipation, IBS, like not necessarily the big autoimmune stuff. There are those people, but more commonly I see like loose stools and IBS and bloating and things like that.
1: Okay. Okay. So, yeah, so I would kind of screen those people and put them into two categories. I don't like to put people into categories, but sometimes (laughs) you need to, right? So if someone has had chronic digestive issues before coming into carnivore, which is really common, they have it before coming into carnivore, they go into carnivore and they see that maybe some improves or that some gets worse or that it doesn't change what i am going to be thinking about there i'm going to be questioning okay how long have they been on carnivore so if it's in the first week or two weeks or three weeks it's not necessarily long enough to actually have a proper like to get a proper picture to know whether the diet's even going to work right you know it's like some people it can take a month for them to even start like properly adapting and seeing benefits so i would say okay if someone has come to me on this diet They have had chronic digestive issues before going on this diet, and they've been trying this diet for maybe four to six weeks or even longer, and they still have issues. What I would be asking the question is okay, right. So if they had this beforehand, then it's possible that what they were dealing with is something which um exists in the gut, a kind of environment in the gut which was there previously, a severe dysbiosis, for instance, yes. so we're kind of in, in imbalance of bacteria, sometimes there's small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. So if they have developed a severe overgrowth, a yeast overgrowth, even bacterial overgrowth in the upper small intestine, if they have uh, let's say you can have pathogenic microbes, you can have, Uh, what are called genuine pathogens, but then you can also have dysbiotic flora, such as Klebsiella, for instance, which can cause issues for certain people and not others. So I would be considering, okay, do I think that this person has dysbiosis? Do they have uh, some kind of an infection, you know, a GI infection? Do they have sufficient digestive capacity? You know, because not only is, are there infections or dysbiosis that we need to consider, we also need to consider things like pancreatic function, things like stomach acid production, mm-hmm. things like um, uh, bile acid synthesis. OK, these are all really important things are given the primary reason why is because you can put someone on a really good diet, like a carnivore diet. But if their gut doesn't work properly, then they don't really get that much from the diet. If they can't yeah. digest their food, you can put them on any diet. Of course, carnivore diet is probably less inflammatory, but ultimately they're not getting everything they need. So let's say that these people have infections. They may have some kind of a parasite going on. They may have poor pancreatic function. They may have um, uh, hepatic cholestasis or mild cholestasis, which means that they're not able um, to generate sufficient amounts of bile or the composition of the bile is, is kind of undesirable, let's say then any one of these things or all of these things, some people have all of them, that is going to prevent someone from being able to adapt to a carnivore diet, okay? Mm -hmm. And it's like, if they come to you malnourished, like, or they they come to you in a state where they're not absorbing nutrients, then putting them on a carnival diet. I mean, sometimes it can actually make someone worse because meat is quite difficult to digest. I know, you know, people in the carnival community will say, oh, well, meat's really easy to digest kind of thing because they give up vegetables and they've got loads of less inflammation and dysbiosis that they can digest meat really well. But honestly, for the stomach, meat is categorically harder to digest than, than, than other foods, let's say, or for the, for the, for the intestine. And what I mean by that is that the bonds holding together uh dietary protein, like animal protein, if the stomach does not have sufficient pepsin or stomach acid, then people generally don't digest it very well. Okay. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, have you ever seen that where people say, well, mm-hmm. you know, I just don't digest dietary protein very well.
0: Oh yeah. I've done a ton of videos. I have a friend of mine who is a kind of a gut expert and HCL adding that in and adding enzymes in has made such a world of difference for so many people I've worked with like a war. And for myself as well, it's like night and day, like without the HCL and enzymes, I'm a lot more hungry. I'm a lot more tired and I'm convinced that it's, I was not absorbing the nutrients from the meat, you know, which is supposed to be the easiest thing in the world to digest, but I just wasn't absorbing the nutrients. And so I found I was overeating more and then I would be more tired. And it was just like this vicious cycle and just adding in those digestive supports for me made a huge difference. And I've seen it work for a lot of people as well. Yeah.
1: Yeah, precisely. Um, uh... That, that I think that's something that doesn't necessarily get as much attention as, mm-hmm. it, as it deserves. It's like assuming that someone, because there are some people who come from a standard diet and then they move over to a carnivore diet and they adapt perfectly because they can properly take what they need to from yeah. the meat but there's a lot of people who don't, they're not, they're not like the success stories, so to speak, you know, you don't see them on the memes or on the videos or on the testimonials, but there's lots of people who've been very sick with other conditions. You know, maybe you talk about chronic fatigue syndrome or Lyme disease or other, you know, more complex conditions and they come to the carnivore diet and actually they find it so difficult because they can't actually, they can't, they can't digest the food. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. First, what I would be looking at is probably some testing in this regard. So I do still testing for these kinds of people. Generally, if someone's got gut issues, I don't really test all that much. But when someone has been on a carnivore diet, I want to rule out, I'm going to rule out some kind of a bacterial infection, some yeah. kind of a parasitic infection. So I'll be looking at something like a GI map, or one of the other stool tests, which is not 100% accurate, but can give some pretty good indication whether there's any intestinal inflammation, for instance. You know, it might be that this person does have an inflammatory bowel disease and they don't know about it. It could There could be kind of lots of things behind this. So a good quality stool test is going to tell you whether there's any major inflammation, whether there's significant kind of immune response down in the gut, whether there is sufficient digestive capacity to some extent and whether there's any issues with kind of fat malabsorption. Okay. Yeah. At the same time, it will tell you whether there's any kind of an infection. So that's what I would like to do with these kinds of people. Sometimes you might do a stool test and you find it comes back completely clean. So then I'm looking at, okay, is it a problem with the, with the hardware? as in the actual cells, which make up the digestive system, rather than a problem with the gut microbes. So, you know, in the functional medicine, alternative health community, they're all focused on the microbiome. You know, it's all about uh, kill off this bacteria, kill off this parasite, boost these bacteria, you know, take probiotics, take prebiotics, all this kind of stuff. Um, But many times people come to me, they've already done that stuff, and it doesn't necessarily work. So there I'm looking at, okay, is there, a, there, is there a problem with the actual machinery of the gut? So for instance, the stomach. Well, we know that you need zinc to make stomach acid. We know that you need uh, vitamin B1 to make stomach acid. We, we know that you need B1 to propel or functioning nervous system, autonomic nervous system to, um, to, uh, to propel food throughout the GI tract to release the digestive enzymes, for the pancreas to function properly, for the liver to be generating enough bile, okay? So what we would be doing there is honing in on the symptoms. We say, okay, so if someone has the typical or classical symptoms of say hypochloridria, which is low stomach acid, That is fairly obvious pretty early on because someone Mm. will eat and within a couple of minutes, they might feel bloated in the upper abdomen. So around where the stomach is, they might start burping or belching. They might feel as though food sits in the stomach for a long period of time. So for people like that, well, the chances are they're not going to be breaking apart their protein and therefore every next stage of digestion is probably not going to work as well as it should be. And therefore these people are likely going to, remain malnourished to some extent until they fix the problem so kind of if i think it's a stomach acid problem then not only would i be prescribing uh stomach acid digestive enzymes pepsin etc i would also be trying to answer the question why is there low stomach acid in the first place Mm -hmm. a lot of times what i find is it's actually a problem with the autonomic nervous system so Generally, a problem with these kinds of people, not only will they have problems with uh, low stomach acid, sometimes they have problems with constipation or they have gastroparesis mm. or they have other autonomic nervous system problems as well, maybe some kind of neuropathy. So I would be doing a workup to try get a, you get know, as much of a picture or as most complete as a picture of, of a picture as possible um, and hone in on which kind of part of the digestive system isn't working or all of it, if it is that case. Um, we've spoken about stomach acid, but say if it is, um, it c- could it be underlying intestinal permeability, which was there previously and is remains there. If that's the case, then trying to address intestinal permeability, there's lots of natural therapies and stuff to do that. We don't necessarily need to go through exactly what that is, but there's lots: glutamine, aloe, all of this kind of stuff. And basically, uh, sometimes just addressing um, I- intestinal permeability can kind of rebalance what's going down, what's going on down in the intestine, and you find that someone starts digesting their food a little bit better. Okay, in the case that it is the liver. Uh, an example might be that if someone has um, pale stools, this is really common. They go from mm-hmm. a, a low-fat diet, they come onto a high-fat diet, and all of a sudden they start developing very, very pale stools. They might have, um, they might have feelings of kind of congestion or swelling around their liver. Um, they might get very nauseous after consuming fat. They might have kind of severe abdominal pain after consuming fat, either pale stools or they ca- could have severe diarrhoea as well in this kind of situation i'm going to say well it's probably not the stomach it's probably not the pancreas or the intestine itself per se it likely has to do with either liver or liver and gallbladder and so in that case we're going to focus heavily on providing all of the nutrition necessary to generate bile acids use preformed bile acids use uh tudka which is toroversa deoxycholic acid type of bile acid we'll be using all of the different tools that we have especially this is where i would be adding specific bitter herbs as well um artichoke extract um uh, gentian dandelion a lot of the plants which can stimulate gallbladder activity so we're going to be kind of you know using our armory to provide the liver with what it needs to stimulate bile acid production and bile flow, but also giving the gallbladder the stimulus to actually flush that out into the digestive tract. Um, Now, those are the main things that I will be focusing on. They're usually the most common things. If someone has like chronic diarrhea, someone has constipation, they get bloating, that kind of stuff. It's usually addressed by one of those kinds of approaches. So stomach assess what's going on in the stomach, assess what's going on in the intestine, assess liver, gallbladder. Okay. However, what you'll sometimes find is that people didn't come on the carnivore diet because they had digestive issues. They came on the carnivore diet because they had some other problem. And then all of a sudden they started developing very severe digestive issues after starting carnivore. Have you seen that?
0: Oh yes, (laughs) definitely. Absolutely.
1: Okay. So this is a little bit of a conundrum, uh, because people kind of, Think They think they've been shortchanged because (laughs) they start on the carnivore diet, they hear all the benefits, and then all of a sudden they've got severe watery diarrhea for sometimes weeks on end or severe constipation. So uh, what I would do in this situation is I would give it time, first of all. Now, if it's diarrhea, I would give it time. I would say, okay, give it a month, a month maximum. I don't want to go any more than a month. In that time, I want to make sure that you're drinking sufficient amounts of salt in your water, possibly an electrolyte mix because you're going to be losing a lot of stuff through diarrhea. So Mm. We want to make sure that you're hydrated, but we want to give you around a month because sometimes it seems as though this is the kind of most common reaction that many people find they have this adaptation period they get diarrhea for a couple of weeks it's almost like the microbiome or the gut bugs are trying to adapt to having no um you know uh, starch none of the plant fibers and all of the fat so it does take a while for the body to adapt um and i usually make sure that they kind of understand that before telling them to go on the diet or you know they, they, they anticipate that. Uh, if it's constipation, I take a little bit more of an aggressive approach. I will prescribe some kind of a laxative. So that will be either higher amounts of um, magnesium citrate. Mm. It might be a, a type of um, oxymagnesium or it might be a, a herb such as triphala. And that is really, I, I'm, I'm more concerned about stuff sitting in the GI tract for a long period of time because we have reabsorption of toxins and things. I don't like that. I'd prefer to see diarrhea than I would constipation so i do do something about constipation i don't really do anything other than uh, optimizing electrolytes and hydration with someone who's got diarrhea now if they've done the diarrhea thing and they've gone on carnival they have diarrhea for about four weeks Uh, anything above that i'm starting to get concerned because then i'm saying right okay well this person is seeing no benefit whatsoever Mm -hmm. what is the problem so does it come back to what we were thinking before is it that okay there is an issue with digestion either they don't have the pancreatic function to generate the lipase either they do not have um you know bile then there's not sufficient bile is it is it some kind of an insufficiency or a weakness in digestion Many times, sometimes it is. I find more often it's actually not. So in some of the cases, for instance, I posted a video on YouTube a couple of years ago, uh, and that was after some research that I'd done for a client, which was uh, an individual who had had um, chronic diarrhea for uh, a long time. You know, you're talking several months. Mm. Now, I've had quite a few clients who have presented uh, with this issue. And in this case i uh i did a bit of research turns out that what the literature indicates is that uh is that sometimes it's not a digestive insufficiency it can be uh actually an excess of bile acids so if you go on the forums or whatever they might tell you that you uh you need to take ox bile or tutka or something like that which is bile acid replacement because bile is meant to emulsify fat and allow you to absorb it and digest it generally excess fat is associated with diarrhea so You know the logic goes that if you take ox bile it can help you digest fat and you no longer get the diarrhea now in some people that is the case however in many people it makes them significantly worse so in these kinds of individuals sometimes it can be that they've got excess bile. And in those cases, um, without going too much into the details, there's some things that I have people do, which can, uh, reduce the amount of bile that someone's making, um, through improving an access, between, basically improving the communication between the gut and the liver. Um, so I might use quite a high dose of vitamin C for this. So I would go up kind of 2,000 to 3,000 milligrams per day. I found in many people, 1,500 milligrams will stop the diarrhea very quickly. Uh, In some people, uh, the herb berberine, milk thistle, these two herbs work very well. And in some people, um, calcium supplements can help as well. I think that's probably there's various reasons why that might be. So uh, in some people, chronic diarrhea can be what's called bile acid malabsorption. They've got too much bile. Uh, I've got a video on all the mechanisms. If people want to listen to that, it's on my YouTube channel Um, uh, and and the kind of therapies that I use for that. That oftentimes uh responds well to those kind of things sometimes what you might find is that someone goes on a carnivore diet they go through a honeymoon period they have really good digestion for say three weeks or two months or six months and then all of a sudden they might might start developing cyclical diarrhea Mm. okay and this might present maybe once a week twice a week three times a week it might present uh, kind of uh at much longer intervals so maybe once every two weeks or once every three weeks and oftentimes these people they do have a history of consuming copious amounts of high oxalate food. that's one thing and that's something that i often do in my case history is work out okay does this person have like this high oxalate phenotype you know have mm. they gone through periods of consuming massive amounts of these foods and if that's the case what you often find uh, and i it never fails to amaze me is that for people it usually presents as diarrhea people who have this cyclical diarrhea or even they have chronic diarrhea consuming some high oxalate food okay usually that is going to fix the problem within t- well less than 24 hours oh, within 12 okay. hours usually okay so i've had some people who've had very severe chronic diarrhea for you know 6 months after going on a carnivore diet Okay. And that is, you know, go to the toilet four, five, six times every single day and it's complete liquid. Okay. No formation wow. whatsoever. Now, in these individuals, uh, if it is caused by oxalate, generally having three to four pieces of dark chocolate, maybe a handful of almonds, maybe uh, drinking some green tea, you want to make sure that you reach maybe 50 to 100 milligrams of oxalate. Usually the diarrhea will stop almost immediately. Okay? and I've seen wow. this on so many occasions that if someone has done everything they can do for digestion um, then you know they've done like worked on the leaky gut stuff they've assessed uh, intestinal uh, infections uh, inflammation they've tried a bunch of different stuff and they still have chronic digestive issues such as diarrhea then I would be going immediately for the high oxalate foods not too much but just like using them as a tool and then what you often find is that If the diarrhea stops, then what that tells you is that it's probably a way for the, for the body to rapidly dump or dump excessive amounts of oxalate through the gut. And in that kind of situation, um, then you'd kind of, if I was in someone's position, what I would be looking to do is gradually reducing the oxalate that I'm having every day and finding like a maintenance dose, one that stops me from having diarrhea, but one, which is not kind of anywhere much higher than 50 milligrams per day. Um, And again, that's usually just a couple, couple squares of dark chocolate or something like that. So that's what I would look at for digestive issues. Primarily Uh, it's less common that you see infections. um, But of course it can be the case.
0: Yeah. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode with Elliot Overton. As I mentioned, I have another amazing episode with Elliot coming out next week on Wednesday on our release date where we're going to talk more about histamine intolerance. He goes really in-depth on histamine intolerance. We also get into a case for supplementation on a carnivore diet and some of the most common issues that Elliot sees people facing on a carnivore diet and how he helps them overcome that. So You're definitely going to want to make sure that you are subscribed to this episode. If it was helpful for you, please do take a screenshot, share on social media, tag me. I want to know if this was helpful for you. And again, you can also help support the show by heading over to Apple, leave me up to a five-star review. It really does help get this information out to more people. I have so many amazing episodes coming out for you guys. I just can't wait. (laughs) So many great things coming up. So make sure that you are subscribed. And thanks again to Healthy Gut, as well as Let's Get Checked for sponsoring this episode. If those products seem like they would resonate with you, they will be linked in the show notes for you. And I will talk with you guys next week. Have a wonderful rest of your day.